We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, girlies, we're live. Yes, we are. We are live. Episode 44. 44. Happy food. Hippie food. Uh, we were going to do one on sleep. If you guys are in Geneva, you probably saw the message, but then Emma and I were like, you know, not like we're sleep queens to begin with. <laughs> I texted Kate. I was like, bruh, I really do not want to do research on sleep. And she was like, yeah, fuck that. Um, Kate and I, so then when we were, we hung out, what, like two or three days ago, literally like our reunion after avoiding, we like detoxed from each other for like three weeks for no reason. Yeah. I was like, bro, it's a long weekend. Let's do something because otherwise I will literally go insane walking up and down the same streets in lower Manhattan. Yeah. Um, and so when we were walking and talking, like we usually do into McCarran park to have a psycho food moment, we were, we were, you know, blabbing. We were like, you know, let's talk about the history of the macrobiotic diet and other hippie foods. Yeah, because we were thinking about, of course, classically, what are we going to eat for dinner? Um, we did have a sacred moment where we were eating chocolate babka in McCarran Park. You know, always have to throw in some random dessert, sloppily eating on a park bench somewhere. And I tweeted, I tweeted that my favorite place to eat in all of New York is on a random bench in McCarran Park because that's honestly the only place that I eat that isn't at my dining table. Yeah, that's about it. Um, we also got weird beverages. I got one that looked like literal. I don't even know it. Like I, we have a. Uh, we have a little Twitter where we like post little food moments and I what did I say like McCarran Park piss or something yeah um and then we got like a digestive <laughs> biscuit the McCarran digestive biscuit or something yeah yeah we like capturing our little food moments and you know making it exciting um then we woke at home and we got like pieces of what type of bread was it it was gluten-free millet bread. Honestly, pretty good. I did cut my finger trying to cut through it. Yeah, your tweet um, killed me. <laughs> but yeah, I made like a sexy little mackerel sandwich. And you know what? She was good. One of the better things that I've eaten for dinner. And I love that we gender all of our food as she. Like, <laughs> she was great. This bowl, she was so good. Um, I had mine with Kite Hill cream cheese and something else wasn't that memorable for me um but yeah we had little bread moment from need love bakery someone asked where it was from I forgot to yeah I forgot you can to she's at Union Square Market and like on Wednesdays I think then McCarran on Saturdays I think you can order live from her uh, okay. also when I was scrolling on Twitter today um now that it's like September you know we're approaching fall I saw like a an advertisement for like pumpkin spice bud light which sounds terrible but that got me excited for like the GT's kombucha, like fall edition, where it's like the carrot, ginger, apple. Ooh, yeah. I'm like, I need that to get stocked on the shelves at Whole Foods ASAP. Yeah, I'm really excited because one, all of the seasonal things, and it's just I'm tired of, you know, I don't I don't fucking care about figs. I'm sorry. They're not that special for me. I like a dried fig. Fresh figs just taste like water to me. We can get into the whole wasp thing as well. But I'm excited for winter vegetables as we have posted for the memes. Also, this is my first winter, like not being vegan. And so I'm excited to have different alternatives versus just tofu and potatoes for the colder months. Yeah, I we can eat other soup that isn't just made from split peas and potatoes. Yeah, also like weird fish moments. I'm just excited to be cold a little bit. I'm yeah, I'm excited to, you know, wear a sweater and not sweat. Yeah, and I've been forcing it to like try to wear pants or try to wear like a sweatshirt and then I just sweat and I regret it and then the day is ruined. It's yeah. the little things. 
little things. Another update for me, I decided I'm going to get back into swimming. Um, this is my new, yeah, a new chapter in my life. Um, for anyone who didn't know or if you're new to the pod, I was a competitive swimmer for like 10 or 12 years. Enjoyed it immensely and then I grew out of it. But I've been having an itch to get back into it. So I'm touring like some some pool that's like along like the Hudson River on Saturday because I like have to fucking tour it. We stand. And, and yeah, I've been like shopping online for like swimsuits and I'm like, wow, I feel like eight years old again. Oh my and God, I'm like, maybe you'll find the love of my life like in the laps pool, <laughs> like along you know, the Hudson River. Emma and I, I support Emma's swimming era. We've been talking a lot about, you know, love and manifestation and all that bullshit classically as we would for two young 20-somethings in New York. And we've been thinking like, okay, if I were to have something happen in real life, where would I meet someone? And then we're like, well, it's either the grocery store or somehow they're going to be in my home. Like I don't (laughs) go anywhere where men are because I was like, oh my God, I need to get an Equinox membership. And then I was like, oh my God, that's so fucking expensive. But yeah, there's not going to be a meet cute at like Whole Foods. Who's going to stop me? What? No, I'm just in there for a power. Has their pods in, everyone's in the zone. But yeah, like the swim membership is going to be expensive. But I'm like, you know what? This is like my one treat. <laughs> right, exactly. We don't treat ourselves to shit. So no. I support that. I feel like I will meet a future, you know, I'm not going to say husband or anything, but maybe a boyfriend at minimum in an athletic environment for myself. And so I, I have good effort. I mean, not, um, good faith for you for something to happen possibly you. you know we never know what the fucking universe is going to predict it just gives us body never, every never, day. yeah nope we don't but you know that does not take us but it does take us to today's episode on you were talking about how shitty our transitions are i think it's funny i think it is hilarious <laughs> um yes we talk about men for one second brown rice the next Emma's going to be swimming and then, oh, we're going to have some fish swim into our macrobiotic diet. You know, woohoo. That's our transition for today. But I think you guys will enjoy this. We talk a lot about politics. We've been getting some uh, things about people wishing for more political content woven throughout the podcast. I got you. We talk about the macrobiotic diet. Talk about, yeah, just saying fuck the system and going off and doing your own thing and kind of how that translates to food politics today. So I'll call you back and we'll get, get this show on the road. Hey, wellness gods. We're here with our newest podcast sponsor, Recess. Here's what they have for you CMOS girlies. First of all, Recess makes canned sparkling water infused with hemp and adaptogens for calm and clarity. It includes some of our favorite ingredients like L-theanine and lemon balm. When I drink a Recess, it keeps me calm and focused on staying in my lane as a wellness god, regardless of white claw drinking bros have to say. Their newest product is Recess Mood Powder, which features mood-lifting magnesium, balancing adaptogens, and electrolyte in powder form, so you can add some calm to whatever you're drinking. Recess Mood Powder is a staple in my nightly beverage routine, and I love knowing that I'm getting all the great benefits from the magnesium while also staying hydrated. I know all of us CMOS girlies could use a new beverage to add to our bedside table. That's why you should check out Recess. Head over to their website and use code CMOS girlies for 15% off your order. Okay, so we'll get into this by talking a little bit about our own introduction to hippie food. So if you're new, new to the podcast, Emma and I were vegan. I think that's for me, at least how I started to eat different things like maca powder, bean sprouts, lentils, chickpeas, all the weird hippie foods that you think of tofu. Um, No longer vegan, Emma neither. And when I moved to New York, we talked about like we're on the meal plans, but there was this one place that I think kind of introduction to health stores is there's a place called fourth street co-op so it is your traditional co-op where you have to be a member to go and get food it's all local produce and they have a bulk section where you use the the jars and the containers to get your brazil nuts or your brown rice pasta or something like that so that was my first experience growing up having any any tangential relationship to hippie food my family growing up we didn't eat anything that was alternative in the food space, I guess. Yeah, I feel like growing up, I mean, again, like I've talked about a lot, my dad was always weirdly into like hippie food stuff. And we actually belonged to some sort of like food co-op when I was growing up. And so I actually remember going with my mom, like, I don't know, I like literally, like, I hardly remember this, but like, yeah, we'd all get like a brown box and it'd just be like, you'd kind of like go and like, yeah, buy your shit or whatever, like your vegetables for the week. But yeah, I, I feel like I had like an early introduction to like hippie food. I suppose we always had weird alternatives, but I feel like moving to New York, is definitely when I was open to just like so much more of like what true hippie food is and especially like the macrobiotic diet and like 
knowing what Suen is and I'm like holy shit like yeah that was kind yeah. of my introduction which is a restaurant in New York Suen is we probably referenced that before um and I went to like farmer's markets here and there but it was never a routine thing it was never like the predominant way of us consuming food is through a CSA or a food share or something like that so I didn't know that that was an entire way that people would eat or gardening like my mom would garden and occasionally she'd be like oh maybe I'll plant like one pot of tomatoes this summer but it was never like this is how we're getting a majority of our foods. And I was never connecting my own food to where it's coming from, to the environment, to anything like that. And I don't think a lot of people do growing up, unless you are raised in different cultures and different, you know, just cultures with different values on food and what it relates about your moral values. Yeah. There's definitely Um, much more like disconnect to like, I think, yeah, if you grew up in America with like food, it's just kind of like, shows up in your table and you eat and that's the extent of it. Yeah. And it somehow got there. And so the phrase hippie food is actually referencing a book that Em and I both read that kind of got us like our eyes opened up to this a little bit more than it previously was by Jonathan Kaufman. And it's a really good book. It talks a lot about like what we're going to talk about this podcast. Then there's some other tangents. We went off and did like additional research about, um, but I was interested in the book just because it was like, yeah, I wonder how you know, organic foods and tofu became mainstream. Like, how did this happen? You know, I guessed that it was like, oh yeah, probably because the counterculture in the 1960s, which is true, which is, I'm going to get into the history here. Um, but it has a lot of weird, like niche things. Like it talks about Bragg's, uh, I'm going to talk about this before the pod. So like your loved Bragg's apple cider vinegar is, talks about the founder of that. And I think it's just interesting too, uh, to have a good historical perspective on like the food system in a little way. So yeah. getting into it. So starting off with like a little bit of a history lesson. So as you can imagine, as I just said, uh, food was pretty much starting to get industrialized like World War II era. And that's when you're thinking of like highly processed packaging foods and obviously like rationing during the world wars as well. People were gardening and like, that's the whole history of like the victory gardens as well. But then in the 1960s, there was this counterculture push, um, the civil rights era, the summer of love, everything you think of with like sex, drug and rock and roll that like Woodstock. Well, that's your imagery in the back of your head when I'm talking about this type of stuff. Um, specifically, the 1967 Summer of Love was like living in communes. And so this is kind of like what you think when you see all those like vintage photos of people like naked in the middle of woods. People were fleeing their homes to go to rural land and they wanted to create new social structures outside of what was going on in the U.S. So no racism, sexism outside of this dominant culture of like the Norman Rockwell American experience, which was like the the, um, creation of suburbs and the nuclear family were really popular in the post-war period. Also like Nixon and the Vietnam War. And so that was what people were fighting, you know, politically. But then it started relating to food when um, these communes started because people were cooking together and it started to translate the conversation over like, fuck this processed packaging food, like fuck all these corporations. It's kind of the same political tones as today, which we'll get into later, but thinking about the community over the individual and growing simple food. And that sort of starts this like hippie food. Like people were really striving to make their meals from scratch, to know where their food was coming from, to feel like they had a connection to where their food was grown. And also like some autonomy over what they were eating. And it was also like a backlash to gourmet foods. So things like really, really expensive elite restaurants and also like a backlash to things like um, Twinkies or Spam or anything that's like super processed. It was like, you started to see this moral conflation of like what you were eating and then what it said about you uh, politically in the country. Um, And so it was really interesting that like the communes period or like in the 60s was this premise was allowing Americans of different backgrounds, including people of different like race, religion, socioeconomic status to unite around this passion for saying like fuck you to corporations and like finding communities around food and how we're all caring for each other and just building different social structures. Now, was this successful? Not really. We're not all in communes now, but it was this like very... um, idealistic vision of like what life could be like if we were living in these communitarian societies. The next point that's pretty interesting is talking about division of labor. And so I think during the sixties and like a lot of the history in the sixties is pretty whitewashed as well, but on like uh, the axis of like sex, there was this illusion of equality between the sexes that like, yeah, men and women are both going to be cooking and cleaning. Like it's not going to be this nuclear household where like the women do the cleaning and the men do like the fighting and all that type of, and going to work and stuff. 
But women often were like degraded by having to do the menial tasks, like the cooking and cleaning and paperwork, where the men often got to do the more of the rebellious things. So this kind of translates over to protests in the 60s as well, that like most of the men or most of the people in history during the 1960s that you know about were men, just because they were the ones that would go and do rebellious acts because they felt like there was this badge of security. And a lot of women were doing the same thing, but didn't really get covered in history, we'll say. Um, so as I said before, like this food movement was kind of called like the counter cuisine. So it was a system of foodways that were integrating these countercultural values. So things like organic or local or seasonal produce, ethically grown, responsible pr- producers, that was the diet of all these young Americans that were fleeing away from like what America was at that point. And as I said before, it was very anti-government. It was turning against this rise of canned foods like Jell-Os and Twinkies, anything with preservatives. And if you want to read a book that's about, I would say, the 1960s more broad than just food, there's one called The 60s Years of Hope, Days and Rage by Todd Gitlin. I read, read it for school for this class. I took on like the 1960s protest culture. And it's really interesting. It like analyzes, I think, race, class, gender, sex really well in the 1960s, because most of the times, like I was saying, it's just like this image of Woodstock, and it's all these like white skinny hippies. Um, There's a lot of different political stuff. So one being that there were these organizations called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So these were happening on college campuses. And how this relates to food is that a lot of this Uh, political rhetoric was about like equality and like started to translate food to being a basic human right that if there's communities that are malnourished like we need to fight politically for fair access to food Um, and there was a lot of political disobedience on college campuses UC Berkeley being the biggest one in 1968 and then when it gets to um, racial justice the Black Panther Party was huge for their um, integration of food as a human right they were creating these free lunch programs once again, started in hippie California. So the first free breakfast program started in January of 1969 in Oakland. And they believed that malnutrition was a form of oppression, another way for like white corporate America to keep specifically black Americans down. And a lot of black female activists in this era often talked about how they really felt silenced in the movement because they had this double burden of womanhood and also blackness that left them with very little visibility when these counterculture, displays of like protests were happening, they were not getting any recognition. And in the 80s, this comes to be what we know now as intersectionality, which was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in the 80s. Um, I'm sure a lot of people like have heard that phrase, but that's what it's speaking to that like, when you are at an intersection of being oppressed by your race and gender, you have like different struggles. And you can like think about that now when you talk whenever people talk about um, equal pay for women that white women make a lot more than women of color. So that's like another example now. Um, so back to the counterculture hippie stuff. So that was kind of the cultural political stuff. And like the kids were living their home, trying to live in these like dream utopias. There's this one magazine that was circulating at the time called Mother Earth News, which is still in public or circulation now, but it started, um, getting submissions of people like submitting their recipes of like how to use tofu or how to make sauerkraut or stuff like that. Um, and it started to get distributed across the U S now the coin, or I guess um, the term like environmentalism also kicked off in the 70s kind of politically for the reasons you would guess. So the Vietnam War in the United States, protesting Nixon, a lot of this relates to pollution, the pesticides, but the same critiques are also now applying to food. I would say like environmentalism in the U.S., it's like a lot of the history of environmentalism, like entirely does not acknowledge uh, people of color because everyone's like, oh yeah, Rachel Carson in 1962 with her book, Silent Spring. If you're not familiar, that's like a huge stepping point of like what people think of that with the environmental history. She wrote about um, pollution and pesticides and like specifically, uh, yeah, like nuclear weapons. But a lot of the history of environmentalism, it just like, as a side note, goes way beyond this like white woman's like writing about it, you know? Um, So with environmentalism, It's interesting because then vegetarian diets and vegan diets become mainstream because people want to challenge like consumption patterns of like we're eating meat and that's bad for the environment. And a lot of people don't eat meat for spiritual reasons, but also there's these health reasons as well. And it also signals like a moral value that like 
if you are eating meat, it's like the impurities of the earth. A lot of people avoided giving it to their kids because it's like putting you on a lower vibrational level. You know, this is like the hippie like mindset. I feel like people think of when you hear like, I don't know. I don't know who I'm like thinking of in the back of my head, but any food marketing now that's like, we'll get you to a higher vibration. Like this stuff was happening. Anything from your news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like any of that type of shit. Um, but then with environmentalism as well, like some of it, it's like the health people that were focusing on like purifying the body, but a lot of it was also applying to ecology. And this is when organic agriculture started because it was challenging, like how we're taking care of the land. And at first it started with words like natural and organic that were about like chemical free fruits and vegetables you could buy. But then it started to talk about a lifestyle. And I feel like that's a thing now where people kind of like act like they're living like a super granola hippie lifestyle. It's not even about specifically what they're eating and consuming, but like it, it's this ethos that says a little bit about who you are. Um, there's a book called Diet for a Small Planet, which I want to read, which is really popular in the 70s. And it was like this vegetarian text about eating lower on the food chain because you're going to have less toxins, using less food. And it gets into like the industrialization of our food supply as well and kind of says like makes people like really question that like you've lost so much autonomy of your life. Like you're saying before, like you have to go to the grocery store. You don't really know where your food is from and there's no other alternative. Um the next thing is ecofeminism. So I spoke a little bit about this before, but this was also popular in the 60s and 70s because it talks about how there's a common oppressor that is like contributing violence to women, earth, and animals. So like the patriarchy is the enemy against all three, and that's kind of how to view the environment. Um, often like women are working in the care economy too. So the care economy, when if you're thinking about it now, is the context of work that's not valued. So childcare is not a human right in the United States. All the labor that women are doing that they're not getting paid for, um, if we put a value, if we put a wage on that type of work, women would be making way more than men, if that makes sense to anyone. Um, and men are often promoting war, promoting like nuclear bombs. And so that's bad for the earth as well. And another thing that like ecofeminism is really serious about is that men often act in relationship to the earth with this domination over the earth that we're going to go and get the most resources out of this forest for a good or a service. But it's not thinking about acting with the earth. It's not like, oh, we should only, you know, take this crop out of this livestock or out of this rotation during the time when the earth wouldn't be hurt by it. It's very much just like exploiting for profit. That's like the male dominated mindset when it comes to um, environmentalism. And then the next thing is I kind of spoke about before is that like food is now viewed as a human right. It's very political, oftentimes thinking about how this intersects with homelessness. Um, in the 1960s, there was this group called the San Francisco Diggers, and they're focusing on feeding those in Haight-Ashbury. And yeah, bread just becomes also like a symbol of like, I think in the 60s, there's this huge, uh, there's a lot of actually ads talking, not ads, but a lot of the hippies were talking about how like Wonder Bread was like the perfect symbol of like everything that was wrong with America. Like white bread was actually becoming way, way more expensive. Like right now, I think we think of hippie food as like the really expensive stuff, like the whole foods, whole paycheck stuff. But back in the, back in the day, um, you were able to like save a lot more if you ate in these hippie food ways versus going and getting like the Wonder Bread because these were really new on the market. Um, and bread was a symbol of like, if you're thinking of like, I'm going to go and bake bread with all of my neighbors in a commune or all my like friends, it's like this act of eating together, caring for the land. Like you're not overproducing. You're all thinking about it ethically versus like Wonder Bread. Like it's all about commodification. You're going to the store, you're buying, you're detached from where your food is coming from. Um, and so there's this, there's this one resource I was using in addition to hippie food, hippie food called edible activism. And it was just talking about like this overall theme of like how the counterculture was seeking to source food outside of the dominant system. And this kind of ties into what um, generally I think when like food choice comes up now, oftentimes I think it's like amongst probably vegans and vegetarians that like food choices say who you are. If you're, if you're buying oat milk or you're buying whole milk, like everything is signifying a moral value to you. Um, and so I think that started in like the sixties and seventies, because that's when this like era of like, kind of, yeah, feeling that not better than other people, but feeling like your choice has power and the economy started. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that even like translates today, even like, you know, how you shop for clothing, like that says a lot about who you are and like what you stand for. Um, so that kind of then gets into the history of like how like tofu became popular in granola and, you know, 
health food stores. And obviously this all connects to like what the zeitgeist was back in this time. And it translated into like, yeah, how people purchased and like bought, you know, foods and ate. Um, and granted a lot of these foods, again, I think like just to remember like tofu, brown rice, and just like full concept, like macrobiotic diet, obviously like stem from like, you know, Asia and like all of their principles and a lot of like, you know, Taoist beliefs, I suppose. Um, and a lot of the people who did bring it into like the US were obviously of like, mostly of like Japan, Chinese, like Vietnamese descent. And then it obviously just became widespread amongst white people. Um, and just like kind of keeping that in mind that like, yeah, a lot of this really would not be where it is today without like, you know, the help of those people in um, yeah, Asian countries. But I think first we'll just kind of get into Erwan, which was the first true health store. Mm -hmm. And it honestly is probably like the wellness gods version of the Vatican. Yeah. Uh, and actually the first location was in 1966 in Boston. And it was created by Micho and Evelyn Cushy. They were huge followers of George Oshawa, who I will get into later, who kind of popularized the macrobiotic diet. And they really wanted to make basically macrobiotic foods more readily available. And so they carried like soybeans and other imports from Japan. So think about like miso paste and like liquid aminos. And the name Erwan actually comes from an 1872 book by Samuel Butler called Erwan. And, and the book is basically just like this like health-minded utopia. That's like, you know, kind of what the book was about. And this was really, yeah, like the first natural foods and wholesale distribution company in the U.S. And they were like contacting many farmers to grow organic crops for really the first time to sell. And I know like ground rice was like a huge staple in the macrobiotic diet, but it was really, really difficult to come across and find like organic brown rice because it was constantly getting like sprayed to make it easier to grow. Um, and so they ended up getting in contact with like the Lundberg farm family, which I probably, we all know, you know, the infamous like rice cakes now. Um, and they ended up getting exclusive rights to sell Lundberg's organic brown rice and were able to sell it at a premium price. And this is kind of when then, you know, health, like healthy hippie food slowly becomes like more expensive and like, you know, why so many, why it's so like not even attainable for so many today. Um, and many of the brands that we know today were first sold at Air One, such as again, like Lundberg Family Farms, Eden Foods, Nasoya, like all these like very like true kind of macrobiotic um, brands. Um, but then how Erwan then gets to the West Coast. Um, so Evelyn, she was kind of like the main, you know, owner of Erwan. And so when she moved to LA in 1969, she opened Erwan West. And just kind of from then, of course, and expands like from this point on. And now they have obviously multiple different locations. And it really has like now just like a cult like following due to social media, influencers and celebs. And Erwan, I think, you know, obviously back in the day and, you know, their main goal or premise was just to make these foods more accessible. And now Erwan is not an accessible place to shop. It's like really stemmed away from those macrobiotic principles and now just has, has like a huge, it's a huge business focused on profits. And I think that's again, now that like health and wellness has become commodified, you know, it obviously has a premium price tag connected to it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we can take a break and then we will get into, you know, tofu, brown rice, all the other hippie shit. Yeah, all the hippie shit. We'll be back. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Emma and I can't shut up about starting your day with the perfect oatmeal toppings. And you're probably thinking, what could be better than securing a bag of maca powder or matching with a boy who actually knows what adaptogens are? Um, hello, a large and juicy medjool date. That's why we're so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Julie's. Julie's is a pantry staple for all the wellness gods. Their hand-picked medjool dates from Coachella Valley, California, are certified USDA organic, naturally vegan, and free of all allergens. There is no better way to snack on Jolie's than with your favorite nut butter or on a bowl of oats. And Jolie's even has a date syrup to drizzle on a stack of pancakes. So if you want to taste some Jolie's for yourself, definitely use code CMOSGIRLIES for 15% off your first order. Now back to the show. Hey girlies, this wouldn't be a podcast called What the Fuck is CMOS without us having a CMOS sponsor. So it's time to learn what the fuck even is CMOS thanks to our newest sponsor, 26th in Love. CMOS contains 90% of the minerals that the body needs. Some even call it nature's multivitamin. Crazy, huh? Here's just a preview at some of its benefits. Are you struggling with gut health? CMOS. Struggling with inflammation? CMOS. Struggling with adrenal fatigue? CMOS. Struggling with constipation? CMOS. You can use the code CMOS girlies for 10% off CMOS gel from 26 and love. Time to become a wellness god. Kidoki, CMOS girlies. So, tofu. Really, tofu, why it's like so connected to counterculture again can be thanks to American hippie kids who stopped eating meat in 1970s. And, you know, this then became like hippie foods associated with them. But actually, the first tofu makers in America were Chinese and Japanese artisans, and they set up their first shop in the 19th century. And then after that, the Seventh-day Adventists, they were largely vegetarian, and they began to slowly manufacture canned soy meats and cheeses in the 1920s to kind of meet that American expectation of like what a classic dinner should look like, where it's like meat, starch, vegetable plate, like I'm just picturing like tofu steak with like, I don't know tofu cheese and mashed potatoes and like steamed broccoli because I think like when we I mean for me now when I think about hippie foods I'm not thinking about tofu like that you know those type of brands that like a look a little bit like ooh, that looks a little bit gross and just because the science of food has changed so much but yeah like back in the I mean back in the day like 40 fucking years ago or 50 years ago you weren't eating like really high quality yeah stuff no you weren't and it's actually so I really want to like look at some of the old like cookbooks because there were so many cookbooks back in the day of like explaining how to make certain like recipes and even like in the hippie foods book it's like insane the type of shit that they would like make um but anyway to get back on track um so it really then wasn't until like the 1970s when tofu goes widespread there's this man named William Shirtluff and his girlfriend Aiko Aoki they both met in Tokyo um Aoki was obviously from Tokyo and they had a burning desire to alleviate world hunger. And I know William Shirtleff was like part of the peace course back in the day. And this was kind of like all during like the Vietnam war and everything and just like wanting to alleviate like hunger. Um, and they both were living off of tofu at the time and thought that this was an inexpensive protein that could feed the world. So together they kind of like published the book of tofu, which is this huge cookbook on like how to make different recipes from tofu. And it was like from like their learnings from different like tofu makers in in Japan and Tokyo. And so they both together moved to California and they just began to preach the wonders of tofu. And they really won the audience and like the hearts of Americans with a, with potato chips and tofu dip that they would like serve to everyone when they were like talking about tofu. And like through this, they were able to sell like, I think over a hundred thousand copies of book of, of, of their book. And then I know that there's like articles getting written by like the New York times back in the day about like the rise of tofu and stuff. And so through this, more tofu shops popped up and they were largely operated by Chinese and Japanese Americans. Thus, tofu became more readily available. But most people, I think part of like, you know, the counterculture movement embraced tofu more out of necessity and not so much to like help, you know, alleviate world hunger because so many were newly converted vegetarians as they were wanting to go against the system. And so this real eating tofu solved many problems for this group because it was inexpensive and minimally processed. Many people that were like part of the Seventh Day Adventists and just like that were vegetarians back in the day were truly just eating like soybean burritos and 
TVP steaks, which they claimed gave them indigestion. So they were all experiencing IBS way before us. Yeah. And yeah, tofu has always been, you know, central to Chinese, Japanese and Vietnamese food. And I think for the West, it's just like viewed as a substitute, whereas, you know, in those cultures, tofu is like such a prevalent thing. They actually like embrace the natural taste of tofu and like are and trying to enhance its like umami taste or whatever. But I think, you know, for many Americans, we try to like mask the taste and like try to convert it into like tofu cheese. And that's kind of how tofu has now become the mascot of vegetarian cooking. Mm-hmm. And then next is like brown rice. Um, we'll get into the macrobiotic diet in the next section, but yeah, brown rice was like the center of the macrobiotic diet. It was really considered the principal grain. And actually in the early days of the macrobiotic diet, there was like this belief that if you ate nothing but brown rice and miso soup for 10 days, you could change the cells in your body and bring balance into your life. So much like hippie, like pseudoscience type of shit that was like occurring in the early days. Mm -hmm. And I actually know like in the hippie food book that Kate and I both read, I know that there was like some, some instances where like people like literally died just from like eating brown rice. Um, and again, it was like a whole grain compared to like white rice. And so counterculture kids were just interested in avoiding industrialized foods. And so since it was a whole grain, it became very popular. Um, the next kind of like main food that I feel like is like very like representative of, you know, the hippie granola people is truly just like granola. Um, so the first kind of like, you know, creation of granola was originally developed by Dr. Caleb Jackson in 1863 in New York. And he was a vocal vegetarian and he really opposed the traditional U.S. breakfast at the time. And so he originally tried to make this like alternative cereal from grand flour and he served it at his like health spa in upstate New York. And really how he made this was just forming grand flour into sheets and then baking it until dry and then breaking it up into small pieces and then soaked it in milk overnight. And he spelled granola back in the time as G-R-A-N-U-L-A. And then later on, a man named Dr. John Kellogg comes along. You all know Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. He invents the granola um, by the way that we know it today by actually utilizing like rolled oats because he got a request from Ellen G. White and she was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists. Again, they were like very much like vegetarian, very granola hippie, wanting to eat like, you know, minimally processed food and like didn't want any of the sugary cereal crap. And he basically creates a gap with like, rolled oats and then renames it granola, how he spelled today and trademarks it. But then granola slowly kind of like ceases to exist once sugar laden cereals at the market with like industrialization and yeah, more processed foods. But then in the 1960s, granola has a resurgence once more co-ops and like health food stores pop up and hippies were able to make their own versions from bulk oats, nuts and dried food. And that's kind of where like the term crunchy or like the term granola, like a granola mom or a crunchy mom that all stems from this because of their crunchy breakfast that they would have. And then granola then returns to the supermarkets in 1972 um, when Heartland Natural Cereal launches. Um, And then, so that kind of gets into the macrobiotic diet. I think, you know, if you were a CMOS girly, you have consumed your macro wool before. If you live in New York, you know about suen. You can just envision your brown rice, steamed kabocha and carrots with your miso tahini dressing and maybe your like seaweed. And so the history of the macrobiotic diet, there's this man named George Oshawa, who is the founder of the diet slash kind of makes it popular in the West. He grew up in Japan. And when he was a teenager, um, he experienced tuberculosis and ulcers. And he wrote a book called Diet for Health by the man of Sagan Aizuzaka. I'm sorry for butchering the names, but he, this book kind of, he credited like preparing Eastern medicine, Western science practices together. And so after reading this book, um, Osawa claimed that he cured himself through adhering to a diet based on the teachings from Diet for a Health and just kind of the concept of yin and yang. And so Osawa moved to Europe and wrote many articles and books on these principles. And then he just like gained following through this. And then again, the founders of Erwan, who I talked about earlier, Micho Kushi and his wife, Evelyn, they were um, both Japanese and they kickstarted the macro case craze in the U.S. They wrote cookbooks, opened the first Erwan again, and then also started the East-West Foundation, which was to kind of advance the education of macrobiotics. And they were really just kind of like critiquing the um, capitalist food culture. And this is, again, why it was so attractive to those in the counterculture movement, because they wanted to go against the status quo. And so the main principles of like the macrobiotic diet, um, it's like based around eating whole unprocessed foods. And 
brown rice is really the center of the diet because 50% of like the diet or your meals were made up of whole grains. Rest of it was beans, seaweed, steamed veggies, and occasionally like fermented foods such as like tofu and miso. And there was really this whole push and emphasis of food either being like yin or yang and really finding the balance between the two. So foods that were yin were considered cool and was really anything that could be eaten fresh. This was like veggies, fruits, seaweeds, and beans. And then yang was like the warm, so like eggs, meat, and fish. And the macrobiotic was really honestly like more of a lifestyle than just a diet in itself. And it was really promoting this journey of empowerment through self-healing and also just like holistic living. And I mean, it is a very like affordable way to eat like brown rice, steamed veggies and beans. That's like a very like affordable and easy way to, you know, have a healthy diet. However, it is like pretty restrictive, but I think it is like kind of a good foundation of like what a balanced meal should look like. And I think it has a lot of ties, you know, to like, you know, with like the food pyramid or like, you know, I think it's like the, my plate now where it's like, you know, you should incorporate every single macro food group into your diet. Yeah. And I think my introduction to macrobiotics was definitely like going to a restaurant that said like, do you want the macro plate? Like I never really knew that it was, oh, it's not just one dish. This is a whole way of being. And I think that's an interesting thing when it relates to like what we think about hippie food now. Um, obviously we've talked about this in different episodes, but organic and organic food and health and wellness are now mainstream. I mean, the reason we have this podcast is because health and wellness is now an entire fucking industry. Um, but like we said, with the air one bit, like places like whole foods have become so inaccessible. The book does talk a lot about the foundation of whole foods and how it started in Texas. Um, and now everyone just thinks of it as like whole foods, whole paycheck, which I agree. And whole foods opened in 1980s and this 1980. And at that time, there were less than half a dozen natural food supermarkets in the United States. So it was a very rare, like time in America to see some huge conglomerate like whole foods pop up um see it especially in places where there weren't communes where there wasn't this counterculture because I think oftentimes when you read a history book and you're like oh the hippies yeah if you weren't living in Berkeley and you weren't in certain parts of America you didn't see the counterculture so you weren't you know you weren't like your parents probably didn't eat tofu I know mine didn't um but when whole foods opened up like that is when it starts to get prevalent in, in suburbs, in places that didn't have like hippies going down the streets in them. But at this time, like in 2017, that's when Whole Foods was bought by Amazon. And so that has changed not only like the priorities of the company, but also just like how it functions. Um, I'm sure there's been, you guys have been like following it with COVID and just how they've been treating their workers, especially like Instacart workers. Um, and so it's like the kind of effect of like Amazon prime being the main priority of like getting people to pay for memberships. Um, also thinking about like what companies and brands that are allowed to be inside of whole foods. I know a lot of the, how I built this podcast, uh, when it's talking about founders in different like food and beverages, like purely Elizabeth granola, I know has a, how I built this episode or other food. Mills. Yeah. They talk about one of their main goals as a company in like the early 2000s was we wanted to be available at Whole Foods. Like that's when we knew we were going to make it because when you're at Whole Foods, you're across the country, you're global supply chain now. But it's just interesting because yeah, like when Whole Foods started, it was this hippie thing. And now with like the corporate consolidation of it due to the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon, you don't think, I don't think of someone hippie going to Whole Foods, right? Like you can get the hippie foods there, but it's not really saying much about your moral value. I think of anything like detached from being a hippie. Like I think when I think of like someone doing a Whole Foods or an Erewhon haul, I'm thinking of some girl in some overpriced yoga set that lives in California in her Range Rover, like on my oh, yeah. for you page. That's what I'm thinking of. I think, yeah, because I, yeah, no, fully same. I don't even think like Whole Foods has any connection really to what the original like you know founding kind of principles were yeah and I do know that people like for example that some of the employees I've talked to at fourth street co-op like they kind of despise whole foods like when you think about it like it's not what their values is and people think get it uh I think tied to like what your local health store does and like a lot of health store employees like do not like whole foods obviously because it's kind of taking the whole integrity out of where things like tofu are from and where things like bean sprouts are from um and the legacy of hippie food another kind of like the political side of it um this is just my own political take that like since the 1960s you know we had this grand vision of utopia from the counterculture that like 
I mean, this is my own take. Some people think that the 60s were very successful in protest culture. I think to a degree, yes. But I also, when you look at society now, we all should be up and fucking revolting. What's, what's happening in the country? Climate change. And like anything that's going on, we don't revolt in this country. And I just think that's like, if you look in Europe, like a minor thing will happen and there will be trash cans on fire sometimes. There's like people fighting in the fucking parliament and like our Congress does not do anything. They tweet. Um, and so when we think about this whole, a lot of the values of the hippie food movement and like food movement in the 60s was voting with your dollar that like, we're going to stop eating meat. We're going to stop supporting Wonder Bread. We're going to go out in our communes as saying like a fuck you to the system. The economy has only gotten more unequal since then. So me voting with my dollar doesn't really mean much when inequality is worse. Back in the 60s, inequality was still bad, especially when you look on race and sex um, lines and like class lines, obviously how that relates to those two groups, but you were still able to have some sort of autonomy. And I just don't think we could see anything like the 1968 protests at Berkeley happening now. Like, it's very much like, oh, once again, it's kind of this issue with like social media. It seems like it's going to be this great solution. Okay, so you guys like posted a TikTok about how your college did something bad. Maybe that led to a little procedural change, but it's still this air, this framework of like some neoliberal governments where you're still acting in the system. Like you're not all going out and burning the school down. You're just like, we want the rule to be a little bit nicer. Um, and so it's interesting now because there are some, you know, some uh, relations back to this food movement where the food justice movement now is focusing on like food as a human right and what that would mean when you look at communities. So a lot of this is with community organizing and CSAs. In New York specifically, there's been a lot of fridges, community fridges that have popped up as a way to like increase food accessibility. Um, if you're able to go to a co-op, that's another way to like support the food movement. Also thinking about the land back movement and how this ties in with indigenous groups. That's another way to think about food as like more of a political need than just like a consumer choice. Um, and also another thing I want to talk about is that like veganism, like I think that kind of this, like we, I, I think we all, when we hear the word vegan, like you kind of think of the PETA, like the militant vegan, that's like, don't eat animals. It's going to kill you, whatever the hell. But I do think that like a lot of the things that vegans preach are not accessible or maybe have their blind spots. Um, once again, not all vegans, but it's like certain strains of it. I mean, I definitely was like that at one point during my time as a vegan. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, did, was the, the hippie food movement successful? I don't know, because now, yes, the food is more, quote, accessible or more, not accessible, but mainstream, but I don't think the values are really there. No. I don't feel like if I'm, maybe if I'm in a group of people and I'm getting like a tofu burger versus a bean burger or a meat burger, do I, some people feel like better than other people because they're eating vegan food, Right. But I don't think people think about politically what it means. Well, I think it has so much connection just like to the me as opposed to the we. So it's like me eating like a brown rice and steamed vegetables and maybe someone else orders, I don't know, like a burger. It's just going to be, I think it's more like, oh, like that person like cares about like eating healthy and is like better than like the other person who's like eating meat and burger. And I think that's like kind of the extent that like the conversation or like how we view food as today and like what its connection has to like really anything. And I think now too, like adding on to that, capitalism and social signifiers I think people think a lot through brand identities now that I was able to purchase my $17 nut butter from artisana or something like that that means that I'm better than this person I do still think there is this like moral compass of like some people feel like with their organic foods that like I'm a better person I think that's just like bullshit obviously but I do think in the society there is a little bit of that like oh, I got my acai bowl from this company and I used my Saqqara Life Beauty Powder, like, look at me go. But I don't really think we're having the same conversation about local food and where food is raised because that, once again, is the harder conversation to have. Yeah, so what you're getting your fucking acai bowl from Mulberry Street, like after your little like yoga class, where's the fruit from? Are the people paid a fair wage? Like, that's technically like the political food conversation I would like to see everyone having, but that seems so impossible to do just with politics. Like the avenues of organizing are not the same as it was in the sixties where like you would physically go out and change your fucking structure of life and go and live in a commune. Now it's like, Oh, if I have something wrong with the brand, I'm just going to like 
post it on Instagram and like protest. Like that's, I mean, it sucks. Like I neg people for doing that. And like, I feel like I have probably participated in that as well. Like, you know, virtue signaling at social media we talk about, but at the same time, it's like, what could I do? Like, I even felt trapped a lot of the times, like when I was at NYU, it's like, not, I couldn't get 20 kids to go and want to, you know, burn down the school or something like that quote like okay knocking on wood whatever the fuck not burn down the school I'm not committing arson to NYU but you know what I mean any of these radical acts that were happening in the era of counterculture I just don't think people would risk everything to do it now because it seems like it's so impossible you're never going to win society is just how it is yeah but if anyone wants to um we can have a CMOS commune mm-hmm. I'd be down for that yeah I think it would be fun we can have some rules. We don't need to have hierarchy. Um, you know, some people can tend to making the memes. Some people can shop for the groceries. Some of you guys that are good at baking can make baked goods. See, we have yeah, some people designated to making hemp milk. The other people can make the banana bread. <laughs> some of the fitness girlies, you guys can lead yoga classes. You can lead weightlifting. Like it's summer camp vibes. That would solve all my issues. That would be so fun. Oh my God. Imagine. One day down the line, if we could have like a CMOS summer camp, like a retreat. I would totally do a CMOS summer retreat. All right. If you're listening to this podcast, go get a pickle jar and empty it out and start putting money in there for when the CMOS summer camp. We will all collectively, yeah, pitch in and fundraise. (laughs) Yeah. Once we have it ready, you got to have some money set aside to come to the commune and then we will all vibe before the planet dies of climate change. (laughs) Oh God. Okay. What else are you doing today, dog? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. It's it's Labor Day. Probably just gonna walk. Not work. Drink some spin drift. Nice. Yeah, I saw you got that spin drift. Yeah, I have a lot of cans I gotta work through. And I don't need to go to Whole Foods, but I will probably find a way to like have to go to Whole Foods or buy some grocery item. Yeah, I need to go and get arugula. That's about it. It's always the arugula, always going to be Wilton. You got to buy some more. That's about it. I need to study, but I also don't fucking want to. And I'd rather stab my eyeballs out. So um, debating that, <laughs> that's about don't it. Don't stab me. your eyeball out. I have a sty in my left eye. And let me tell you, it is painful. You don't want pain in the eye. No. Um, okay. I actually have a Braggs meme. Oh, should I drop it today or tomorrow? I was about to say, we need to post a meme. So you can post a meme right now. You can do the Braggs meme. Okay. I'll do the Braggs meme. Um, and the girlies hippie food will be in your feeds on Tuesday. Um, always a pleasure to pod with you, Emma. We'll see you next week. Whenever the, whatever the fuck we do the week after. Whatever it is. Okay. Illy dog. Bye.